greet you, ladies. What a sweet promise when we close our eyes in death for those who are Christian, who have placed their faith in Jesus. When we awake, we will see that Father's throne. Let's go to our God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you are our sovereign God, that you are our redeeming God, that you are the God who we place our hope in, so that whatever comes, we know the promises you can make for those who are yours, and that we can trust them and hold to them. Father, Lord, help us to further hope in those promises this morning as we come to the preaching and teaching of your word. May you strengthen us and sustain us in the faith, both here and to the ends of the world. <clears throat> Father, this morning we want to pray for a sister church just south of us and uh, Gateway Church there in Mount Vernon and their pastor, Dustin Hill. Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, this sister church and in partnership in the Southern Baptist Convention. And Lord, we uh, thank you for this uh, fairly young church plant and just ask and pray with for them and, and their pastor, Dustin, as, as they do the work you have given them to do. May the saints there be built up this day, and Lord, may you be exalted and glorified. Lord, we also want to pray for the some rough 4.7 billion people around the world who still do not know Jesus. Some 7,245 people groups who currently have little to no access to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we plant churches, as, as we do the work of the local church, Lord, help us to be about getting the gospel out to not just our, our surrounding city, but other cities and other nations and other peoples. Lord, we pray, Lord, for these people groups to no longer have no access to the gospel, but for the gospel to be being proclaimed among them and for people to come to believe in Jesus as they hear of him and all that he has done. God, would you make your name known around the world by sending out more laborers? For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Oh God, would you do that mighty work so that people may enter the hope of the gospel? Lord, even as we think about that hope, even as we think about the reality of death and closing our eyes and awakening and seeing the Father's face, Lord, we want to lift up to you uh, the family, family of Melba Bryant who passed away. Father, we lift up to them as they both grieve, and yet we pray, Lord, for them to do so in hope, knowing that Melba had trusted in Christ and is therefore no longer in pain and suffering, no longer struggling to remember, but standing, rejoicing before you. Lord, would you help comfort the family, her family and friends in the days and weeks ahead? We ask and pray, Lord, that you would do that. Lord, we pray, Lord, too, that even as we now hear your word, that we would be strengthened by it, of the hope that awaits us in Christ. 
and that we would go forth and declare that message forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Living where we do every fall, sometimes early summer, depending on the field, the dust begins to fly. As farmers begin to harvest their crop and gather it in. You know, it's interesting about farming because unless you've done it, you don't ever think of the timing, the urgency. Why is it some years are dustier than others? Why is it it has to be done when it does? But the moment you become a farmer, you realize that there is an extreme amount of calculation and urgency to that work. There's an urgency because, especially in things like hay, which is my territory most familiar with, you have what's called an early cut and a late cut. There's an urgency because if you don't cut the early cut early enough, your second cut won't produce much. But even more so, there's an importance of getting that first cut cut rightly because it will then provide the most nutrients for animals, especially for dairy cattle. You know, that, that big glass of milk you had this morning or in your bowl of cereal, it didn't just get there by itself. That, that cow had to be nourished and then milked. Well, the first cut provides that nourishment for that cattle. So it was important then for farmers belling hay to cut that in the right time as it had the most ingredients. But even then, there was a sense of urgency because not only did you have the timetable of when the crop was ready, now you have to worry about the urgency of working against weather. You can't just cut hay and then let it rain the next day and sit there and then just go about belling it quickly. You've got to rake it multiple times then to get it dry enough to bell. Then not only that, you've got to be able to bell it and have the people to bell it. Now, one of the things about belling hay, especially if you're doing square bells, you have to have a team. You have to have somebody driving the tractor to, to bell it together. Then you have to have somebody pulling it out of the baler, and then you have to have another stacking it, you know, seven, eight levels high. So ideally, you've got two stackers to get it there. So all of these things are calculated in preparing for harvest of hay. How much more preparation should go into the thinking and consideration of the harvesting of souls and the being alert of the seasons and awareness of it and the urgency behind it? That's what we see as we open up to John chapter 4 this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to, to open up to John chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 27. And while you're turning there, I want you to consider the fact that we've been now looking at the Samaritan woman for two weeks prior to today. This will be our third week considering this encounter with the Samaritan woman. And as we pursue this, we have seen that here this, this Samaritan woman, this promiscuous woman, has been resistant so far to what Jesus has offered. At least in the start, she was very resistant. She, was, she mocks Jesus. She thinks that, oh, he's just merely offering me some water. I just don't want to come draw water anymore. So yes, give me this living water. 
She begins to have her eyes open a little bit, as we saw last week, in, in coming to the understanding of what right worship is, of, of worshiping God in spirit and truth. But this morning, she begins to be radically changed. And we become aware of the harvest before us and why we need to enter this great work. So hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, sorry, no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? See the woman, or so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Such a rich passage. But what does it actually mean? And what does that have to do with us? Well, here I think is the main idea of John 4, 27 through 42. And if I'm doing this preaching thing rightly, the main point of this sermon. Christian, the will of God for you is to join Jesus in God's work. For the fields are white and ready for harvest. Let me repeat that. And it's on the screen. Christian, the will of God for you is to join Jesus in God's work, for the fields are white and ready for harvest. Pretty straightforward. We're going to look at this in three points. Point number one, the amazing work. Point number two, the urgent work. And point number three, the fruitful work. Let's look at point number one, the amazing work. We often forget exactly just how amazing this work of God is that he's inviting us into. We forget the fact that it overturns cultural norms, that it, it transforms, and that it also satisfies. Consider here first the fact that the, this amazing work overturns cultural norms. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman that no one said, what do you see, or why are you talking with her? 
The disciples here come back and they find Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman. Because remember, they've gone to find food and bring it to Jesus. So now they come back into the picture at the end of this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And they are amazed. They are astonished at what they see. Their master talking with a Samaritan and a woman at that. It would have been wrong and seemed culturally out of the norm for a Jewish man, especially that of a Jewish teacher, to be talking with a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus here is openly talking with her, not hiding who he's in conversation with. But he's engaging her. He is showing compassion towards her. The gospel does not care about cultural norms and traditions. The gospel exceeds that. The gospel penetrates that. It breaks those barriers down. It's like a wrecking ball that breaks through the walls of an old abandoned house or building. Think about how the way a wrecking ball comes. It comes and just crashes down and brings down the strongest of walls. That's what the gospel does here of the cultural norms that would have prevented Jesus from engaging the Samaritan woman, this foreign woman. Friends, this gospel that we talk a lot about, it's not just about traditions. It's not caring what your culture demands. It penetrates and crosses all of that with its power, breaking barriers between men and women, breaking barriers between a Jew and a Samaritan, between us and the nations. That's how amazing this work is. That means the gospel is not just for one set of people. It's for every people, every tongue of tribe and language. That's what God's work is about. He doesn't want just the Jewish people for himself. He wants the Samaritan woman. He wants the Arab. He wants the Chinese. He wants the Australian. He wants the Somalian. He wants the Central American. He wants the Algerian. He wants the Chilean, the Panamanian. God wants people from every tongue and tribe and language. This is his amazing work that he's about, but it's good news for each and every one of us because it has no barriers to it. That means, friend, no matter how bad you were, there's not a barrier for sending the gospel from coming to you. That means that family member who you think might be too far gone in your mind, maybe you won't say it out loud, they're not too far gone for the gospel to break through and to transform and to save. This is the amazing work that God has given us to enter into. This gospel, it really is this simple that we can sum it up in a children's song. Jesus loves the little children, all the children in the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Do you see how amazing God's work is? You know how far he's willing to go? One, he sent his son to die on the cross in order to rescue sinners and bring them to himself. But not only that, when we are too stubborn to go, when we're too stubborn to enter this amazing work, God is about this work himself. 
in the fact that his sovereignty is working through and putting the nations among us. The Kurdish people are a people who have not had gospel access for a long time. They're a nomadic people. They have really no homeland. There's many Kurds in that of Iraq. There's many Kurds in that of Turkey. Uh, in fact, the, the friends I went to see were working among the, Tur the Kurdish people in Turkey. Do you know the Lord has sovereignly brought the Kurdish people, and there is an abundant number of them right now in Nashville, Tennessee. The Lord has worked out circumstances to put Kurdish people amongst gospel-proclaiming people. Not only that, Somalia is one of the hardest places to get into for gospel access and gospel work. There's a whole compound in Clarkston, Georgia, of Somalian peoples who have been brought here for various reasons that the gospel is now being proclaimed to, and people are coming to believe. Friends, this is God's work. He is so zealous for this amazing work that he will lack nothing, even our disobedience and missions and evangelism, to stop his work. And yet, this amazing work he brings us in to take part in. But not only is this work amazing in the sense that God is moving to do this and overturning these cultural norms, it's amazing in the fact that it transforms. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? A woman who had come to withdraw water from the well to at noon to avoid people encounters Jesus, is radically changed by that encounter. She Instead of running from the people, she runs towards them. She runs towards the people after her encounter with Jesus because she can't help but tell them about Jesus. This Samaritan woman whose permission is now has seen the Christ, has come to know the Christ, and is being transformed as we read the story, as we speak, she is being transformed. Friends, this is the same gospel work that has been done and being done in each and every one of us. If you have believed in Jesus, you have been changed and you are being changed. The very fact that we were brought from unbelief to belief is the initial part of that transformation. Think about it, how much you resisted the gospel at one point. Okay, maybe you came to church because that's what culturally was the norm, my mom and dad bringing you to church. But you were resistant to an extent because you had yet to say, this is my faith. This isn't my mom and dad's faith. This is my faith. Until the moment you believed. And the very fact that God, through this gospel, is also changing you and transforming you. He's cutting out the hatefulness in your heart. He's cutting out the self-centeredness to, to make you other-centered. This is the transforming work of the gospel. This is God's work in us. That's continuing to play itself out. God's people are continually changed. But they're changed not just to be changed themselves, but now being changed in the point of being zealous to join in this mission work. 
Samaritan woman, she goes, she tells. She's not been in the school of Christ long, and yet she goes. But she doesn't go and proclaim more than she knows. She doesn't try to go and articulate the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Oh, what does it say she does? Look again there, verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She comes to proclaim what she knows. All she's done is encounter Jesus and pointed others to go and see him. Because he's told her all that she has ever done. She wants them to encounter and see Jesus for themselves with their own eyes. Friend, do you see the amazing work here that God is inviting us to? It doesn't have to be super complicated. Maybe most of you feel inadequate in the realm of evangelism and missions. Maybe you think, I don't know enough to proclaim the gospel, to share it as a person in personal evangelism. Friends, you know enough to say, come and see a man who has saved me, a man who has bled and died for me, that my sins may be taken away. Come and see him. It really is that simple. If we would just go and tell others, come and see this Jesus. Do you realize, friend, that you can invite people to come and see Jesus by inviting them to open up God's word with you in the Bible and just read through it? One of the simplest ways we can do this work and invite others to come and see is to come and read God's words. Read what Jesus says about himself. Let Jesus make the claims of himself. Especially if we're too afraid we're going to stumble over those words. Invite somebody to read the Gospel of John with you. Invite them to come and see. Invite them to come and see in gathering with us on a Sunday morning as they see God's people interact with God and one another. As they hear the Gospel proclaimed in both song and scripture. Invite them to come and see Jesus. Invite them to come and see Jesus by bringing others alongside you in that work. Friend, one of the, one of the mistakes of, of personal evangelism is to think it must stay personal, that it must stay one-on-one. -on -one. No. Invite other Christians alongside you. Intermingle non-believers and Christians together. If you're having a get-together at your house, invite a non-Christian to join in as they see you lovingly interact with somebody who you should have nothing in common with except for Christ. You see the ways we can join this amazing work by simply saying, come and see, come and see this Jesus. We do not need to be in the upper levels of the school of Christ. All we must do is invite them to come and see, and we should I love how J.C. Ryle puts this. He says, everyone who has received the grace of God and tasted that Christ is gracious ought to find words to testify of Christ to others. Christian, let us go and say, come and see this glorious Christ who is redeeming, who is saving from my sins, who has promised me life in him. And not only that, friends, up to this point, it can feel easy to feel convicted that we need to do personal evangelism and guilted into it. 
But there's also much satisfaction in this amazing work of evangelism, of making disciples among the nations. Look at verse 31 and following. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We know Jesus was tired. We know he was weary. We saw it back in, in verse 6 of this chapter where it said Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. Jesus was tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. The disciples bring him food and offer him, and he refuses. Not because he's not still hungry, but he's more satisfied in the food of doing the Father's will than anything. But what in the world is Jesus saying? What does it mean to be satisfied in doing the will of the Father? Well, look on the front of your bulletin in our call to worship this morning from Deuteronomy 8, 3. We're going to read this again. I know we've already read it once. But look there on the front of your bulletin from Deuteronomy 8, 3. Here's what it means to do the will and be satisfied in it. Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's will for the Son was to be about his work. And Jesus finds satisfaction in going about and in accomplishing that will. He's satisfied as he does the work of the Father, the word of the Father. Friends, do you realize that doing God's work is ultimately satisfying? It's satisfying in the sense of us being able to taste God's word and to do it and to live off that, to thrive off of it. Hear how David writes about God's word in Psalm 19.10. He says, more to be desired, talking about the wall of the Lord, are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in drippings of honeycomb. Friends, God's word, his law, his testimonies, his will for us is sweeter than honey. It's finer than gold. It's more satisfying than any treasure of this world. It's better tasting than the juiciest steak. You know, as I worked at Texas Roadhouse, people would always come in and say, I want your most flavorful steak. And I, it would always be, all right, here, here's what our steaks actually are. If you want the most tender, it's, it's not the ribeye, it's the filet. But if you want the most flavor, it's also going to be the toughest and have the most fat, it's the ribeye. Every time, people would second guess you and order, and, and then you prove right, and they, they'd grumble and all of that. God's word, his will, is sweeter 
and more tastier than that ribeye. And I love our ribeyes. God's will is sweet to the soul. It nourishes us. Friend, what if we were so satisfied in God and doing His will, so longing for it? You know, it really is an amazing work that we are being invited into doing. Friends, we are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe and obey all that Christ commanded. Do you realize this work doesn't stop because of family lines? So therefore, if you are single, if you your generation stops at two or three generations, there's work for you still yet to be doing in the realm of investing in God's people and in the peoples of the world. We're all called to be fruitful and multiply, and that's not tied to genealogy. It's not tied to family traits. It's tied to us going out and sharing the gospel and making disciples. You see how this amazing work we're invited into doing, to be a part of? And this, not to mention that, this also is what satisfies the Father. Christian, you want to know God's will for your life? It's to enter this work. This good and awesome and amazing work that is transforming people and drawing people to God himself. Seeking God's will is not about merely figuring out what job to take, what house to buy, what person to date and marry, what car to buy. It's not about any of these circumstantial things. To, to seek the will of God is what God calls his will. What does Jesus tell us the will is? Look back at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. God's will for our lives, Christian, is to go about making disciples. And it starts with personal evangelism. It starts with inviting others to come and see Jesus. This is the amazing work that we are being invited into, but we need to enter it and enter it with urgency. And that's where we turn in our second point this morning, which is shorter, I promise, as well as point three. Verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Four months, and then the harvest comes. Much like the, the opening example and, and story of farming and preparation for harvest, there, there's preparation. You, you sow the hay, you've got to wait. You've got to wait. You've got to wait until it's finally time for harvest. But what Jesus is saying here, there is no time to wait. The, look, he says in, in ads in verse 36, or there in 35, he says, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. There is no four months and wait. It's look and see now it's ready. I love how Calvin puts it. He puts it better than I could. When the corn is ripe, the harvest cannot bear delay, for otherwise the grain would fall to the ground and be lost. And in like manner, the spiritual corn being now ripe, he declares that there must be no delay, because delay is injurious. 
Solomon had those similar thoughts. He says and, and writes there in Proverbs 10, 4, and 5, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. We are bringing much shame and injury if we delay in the work that God has given us to do. There is an urgency. The fields are white and ready for harvest. In the state of Illinois alone, it is said that in the latest IBSA report, 71% claim to believe in Jesus. But of that 71% is an astonishing fact. Only a quarter, a quarter of that 71% are said to be born-again believers. 71% claim to be believers of Jesus, but only a quarter of that 71% actually have an understanding of what it means to be born again in Jesus, which means there's a lot of people who profess Jesus that aren't Christian because they have not been born again from their sin and trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. Friends, do you not see the fields are white for harvest? Both here and to the ends of the earth, people are perishing without this gospel, without the hope of Jesus Christ. They're perishing even as we speak. As we speak, bodies are being sent down the Hindu, or in, in India, and down the rivers, and being literally burnt. They're set on pyros, and it represents a spiritual reality, to, to paraphrase the story from David Platt. He talks about one of his trips going and seeing this, and then seeing them with flame and ripple, wakes up to realize that they're literally burning in hell right now because no one told them about Jesus. Friends, let us not delay in this world. We have no time to be slack. We have no time to sit and be comfortable in the pews. We must be going until our dying breath let us proclaim Jesus and see the urgency in it. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the tenth teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and ungrateful. Friends, if we see the urgency of people needing Jesus, we're going to make sure we enter that work. We're going to be sure we're about that work. Because there is a time now to sow the word and to reap its harvest. Look there again in, in verse 36. It says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Verse 37, For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Friends, even now, sowing and reaping is taking place at the same time. There is no sowing and delay. There is the sowing of the word, and people are reaping right now. 
Let us be about both words. Let us be sowers of the word and reapers of the word. Let us sow seeds of the gospel and pray that we are reaping fruit from it. But we need to see first that we must enter this labor. For some of you, maybe this morning, and, and even a, the group this small, I'm, I'm not convinced that there's not a, a non-believer among us. If you have yet to believe in Jesus, you need to see that you need to enter this labor by first repenting of your sins and believing in Christ. Believing that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world by dying on the cross and rising again. Friend, if you fail to enter the work by believing, what are you waiting for? Do not delay. Because eternity is coming for us all. Will we live or will we die? And today the day we live. Believe in Jesus and trust us Him as the only Savior in the world. But others of us, we need to realize this urgency and drive us to enter this labor. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. We are being invited to enter along with a long line of laborers. We enter the same labor of the Apostle Paul. We enter the same labor of Jesus. We enter the same labor as David and Amos and Isaiah and Hezekiah and Zechariah. We enter the labor of John the Baptist in laboring to draw people to God. This is what we are being called to enter into. Friend, will we enter that great and glorious work? And not only that, we must see that even as there is an urgency to the work, even as this work is amazing, that it will not be in vain. And that's where we turn in our third and final point this morning, fruitful work. We've already read there in verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. But look down also in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, if we will be faithful to proclaim it, there's fruit coming out, both in the present and in the future. Presently, we see that immediately upon the woman telling those in the town to come and see a man who told me all that I have ever done. The people immediately went out of the town to find Jesus at the well. They immediately went to see themselves. And verse 39 echoes that. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Fruit was coming out the moment the gospel was proclaimed. The moment people were told to come and see this Jesus who knew everything. Friends, do you know when you proclaim the gospel, are you expecting fruit? Are you expecting that God is still working through that very gospel that he first proclaimed to you? 
Friends, you can think it, it, it must be my strategy that, that's the issue. Or it must be my church's strategy that we're not reaching more people. No, it's always the same thing. Wherever the gospel goes, there's fruit of the work. It just may not always be immediately visible. But we must sow the seeds of the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that the power of salvation is the gospel itself. He tells us that. The gospel is the power of salvation. Friends, do we see that? Do we expect God to work through this very gospel? So let's sow seeds of the gospel everywhere we go. Let the peoples hear this gospel. Let us tell others, entrusting that this gospel works by penetrating hearts and bringing new life. And even if we don't visibly see the fruit in the immediate, let us be patient. Look back again to verse 35, 35, or 36, sorry. Already, one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. There is no gathering in of harvest and fruit where there is not both a sower and a reaper. Friends, even if our evangelism seems fruitless at first, let us not grow weary of it. Because no one is going to reap without someone having first sown. This is both humbling for the reaper, because they can't say, look at what I've done, had not somebody not prepared the way ahead of them, they would have never come to the place of belief. But more importantly, it's the sower and the reaper who rejoice together in this fruit. Look again at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So, so some believed immediately in hearing her testimony. But look there again at verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. In verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. The Samaritan woman's witness was not lost. She faithfully told them, invited them to come and see, but it took others a day or two with Jesus himself to hear and to believe. They both rejoiced together at that fruit. It was both of their labors that led to that fruit. So, friend, do not grow weary in sowing the seeds of the gospel. Sow it wherever you go, because fruit will come. But we need to trust that God will work in a way he's always worked, through the power of the gospel. Therefore, we must proclaim the message of the gospel, so that all may hear and believe. Friends, do you see this great and awesome work that we have been invited into? Why do we sit so lethargic, comfortable, more concerned with self-preservation instead of Christ's exaltation? We sit here in self-preservation because we're too ashamed to proclaim the gospel to our friends. We're too ashamed what they may think of us or how we may not stumble over our words and be brought to shame because we can't articulate as clear as we thought we could. What is the Samaritan woman, friends? What did she say? Come and see a man 
who told me all that I ever did. Can we not, at the very least, go and say, come and see a man who has saved me. Come and see a man who has purchased me with the giving of his own blood. Will we not enter that work with urgency? Will we not see your neighbors and family and friends perishing and get to work by proclaiming this gospel? And let us entrust the fruits coming out. The gospel, wherever it goes, fruit is coming out. So therefore, Christian, again, what is God's will for our life? To join Jesus in God's work for the fields are white and ready for harvest. Friends, let's not delay in this awesome, transforming work of God that he has given us. Let us go to it with urgency and know that a harvest is going to come in and our labor will not be in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. God, we pray and ask, O oh Lord, that you will give us a sense of urgency to go and to proclaim this good news of Jesus to the nations. God, help us. Help us to not be slothful. Help us to be prudent sons and daughters of the King, to be about his work. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close and seek, send light. <laughs>